the theme of Making Sense episode 52 is how an environment reacts to an anomaly. Resilient systems keep these aberrations constrained, but fragile ones can retroactively redefine what had earlier been labeled as an irregularity, oddity, operational error, to something altogether more unsettling, cause, spark, trigger. In part one, Jeff Snyder continues his multi-week review of historical breaks to the smooth functioning of interbank payment and messaging systems. This time, a look at a sequence that led to a week-long disorder to Fedwire in August 1990. Part two, also a continuation of a multi-week review, ponders what may be causing the disquieting twist in the U.S. Treasury yield curve. Is the demand for short-term collateral a disqualification of reflation, as was the case during 2013's so-called taper tantrum? Lastly, some words on oil and the developing Texas power market credit crisis in which electric retailers failed to make $2.1 billion in required payments and put the largest power generation and transmission cooperative into bankruptcy. Fedwire operational errors, unsettling demand for bills, Texas margin calls, an approaching quarter-end seasonal low point in liquidity, a looming regulation-mandated U.S. Treasury cliff on April Fool's Day. All anomalies in a resilient system. Ladies and gentlemen, earlier this week, there was a disruption to the Fedwire system, and it went offline for a period of time. Now, if you've been following this show, Making Sense, then you know that over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about these interbank payment systems. And by we, I mean... Jeff Snyder, the head of global research at Alhambra Partners. My name is Emil Kalinowski. Jeff, we're going to talk about a disruption to the Fedwire system, but perhaps not the one that everyone's expecting, at least not immediately. We're going to go back in time. We're going to go back to 1990, August 13th. It was a Monday, and it was the first domino in a series of dominoes that would eventually lead to Fedwire deception. Uh, can you tell us what happened on Monday, August 13th, 1990? Well, first, you know, I think we got it. We, yeah, as you pointed out, we've been talking about these inter interbank plumbing issues, which I guess if we're talking about just raw, raw correlations, conspiracy theorists might think that maybe we were the cause of the Fedwire disruption this week. Because it's kind of odd how we've been talking about Fedwire and all this stuff, and oh, by oh, there's an interruption that just that just happens. But yeah, I mean, these things do happen not often. In fact, very infrequently, which is one reason why we kind of pay attention to them. And one particular episode took place in 1990. It was one of those things where it was, you know, a combination of failures that happened in just the right order and in just the right way that led to what really was a pretty big deal. Uh, it started, as you said, on August 13th, 1990. There was a major fire. I think it was a four-alarm fire, which if you know anything about big cities and fires, that's, that's a huge deal. An electrical substation in downtown New York that serviced much of Wall Street. And so on this particular Monday in August of 1990, that caused a blackout in lower Manhattan, which just you know, caused all sorts of problems for brokers and exchanges and all sorts of things. 
And for the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, which operates not just Fedwire, but ACH and all sorts of these electronic settlement systems too, that caused them on that Monday to switch to their backup power because let's face it, they know about backup. They have to have backup power. Can I just read a quote from the New York Times about that disruption on August 13th? Uh, Let's see here. Quote, the bond and foreign exchange trading slowed because broker intermediaries who supply prices for buyers and sellers were cut off. Their squawk box intercom suddenly went quiet. Their computers no longer humming. Back to the Federal Reserve, New York. Yes, and that was on Monday and Tuesday because the power outage, because this is a major fire, a major electrical substation, not something you can just fix overnight. So the so most of Wall Street, especially the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, had been on backup power for the days following it. And I believe it was a Thursday, the 16th, all of a sudden, a cooling pipe burst in the basement of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, <laughs> which just happened to be where these backup servers were located, or not servers, backup uh, power generators were located. And two out of the three power generators ended up going down, leaving the Federal Reserve Bank of New York's facility in lower Manhattan, which was responsible for Fedwire and all these other things, suddenly without enough power to manage all of its all of its services. So there, on Thursday, August 16th, 1990, Fedwire, it didn't experience a complete interruption, but it slowed down to the point where it was a major issue for much of the, uh, much of the interbank plumbing uh, of the uh, financial system. Now, you would think that this is a pretty big deal. The stock exchange is closed, Fedwire hiccups, but the world's attention or even New York City's attention wasn't on what was happening there, or perhaps Maybe memory was kind of smoothed over, but by other events that were taking place, and you list several of them here. What did what captured our attention? (laughs) August 1990 was kind of a busy time. People who are old enough would probably remember. I think it was August 2nd, 1990, Mm -hmm. when Saddam Hussein's Iraqi forces invaded Kuwait. So most people's attention wasn't focused on you know Fedwire and all of these issues anyway. And then there, you know, geopolitical issues as well as, I mean, even in the financial realm, we had the savings and loan crisis that was finally coming to a head, thing that had been building for half a decade before then. You know, people were really concerned. I mean, was this going to lead to another Great Depression? We have a banking system, or at least what we think is the banking system going down. And then in August 1990, we, we were in the first stages of what would be an actual recession and the first one in almost 10 years, going back to 1982. So there was lots of other stuff going on at the time this Fedwire incident happened, which, I mean, for one one thing, as you pointed out, Emil, this this is a serious thing. And when, you know, you go back and look into the, to the archives and the scholarship, as far as the Federal Reserve is concerned, there's almost no mention of it. There's very little information about what happened with this. There's lots of news reports. There's quite a few that, you know, hey, fire on Wall Street, you know, Fedwire goes down, major interrupt. I mean, that that, you know, that was kind of mainstream news, but in terms of what the Fed was is talking about, including the uh, FOMC meetings, they didn't even mention it. It was, it was as if this thing didn't happen. And you know, that same tone of it didn't happen or there's very little information, I'm finding, at least in this Financial Times article, about which has happened earlier this week. Now, I'm going to read a few lines from it, and there's just very little information or gravitas or concern in this article 
based on what we discussed in episode 46, part one, when it came to, came to the Bank of New York in 1985 and how serious that was. In episode 49, part two, we talked about the German bank Herstat in 1974 and interbank settlement risk. So there are serious concerns when these interbank uh, markets are disrupted. But let me read from the Financial Times what they're reporting. So this was on February 24th. And it was called Operational Error Disrupts Federal Reserve Payment System. U.S. Central Bank restores services after outage, but notifies clients of transaction backlog. The Federal Reserve suffered a temporary outage in its system for interbank payments on Wednesday, forcing it to scramble to restore operations in a vital part of the U.S. financial system. The Fed issued a statement on the trouble affecting its payment systems on Wednesday afternoon, attributing it to a mistake without, further, for, without offering further explanation. Quote, a Federal Reserve operational error has resulted in disruption of service in several business lines. We are restoring services and communicating with all Federal Reserve Financial Services customers about the status of operations. The Fed staff began investigating problems with the payment system shortly after becoming aware of them at about 11.15 a.m. in the morning. Shortly before 3 p.m., the systems had resumed operating according to the U.S. Central Bank. Just not a lot of concern. It was temporary. It's no big deal. Yeah, well, episodes 46 and 49 were about temporary events, too, that had serious implications. Yeah, and, you know, if we go even go back to the 1990 episode, one of the reasons I like to, I wanted to review it was because, it, you know, the, what is Fedwire? What does Fedwire do? It's not just, you know, where, you know, a couple of people send wires back and forth to each other. A couple, it's, it's a high value interbank uh, payment settlement system that basically um, almost everything runs through it. All the, you know, the stuff we talked about, chips or CLS or um, any number of the exchanges, the Chicago Board of Trade. They all get linked to Fedwire. So Fedwire is essentially sort of the backbone of the payment processing system. And so it's not something you can just turn off and turn on. Oh, well, we, we, we interrupted service for a couple hours. As we talked about before, that leads to a, a cascading effect where the banking system says, oh, crap, I don't have any way to process vital payments. And that could potentially cause enormous amounts of trouble. And in August of 1990, on August 16th of 1990, as Fedwire was interrupted, and especially government bond dealers were, were worrying about, okay, we don't know if we're going to be able to, to settle our payments requests, um, there was a massive sell-off in the Treasury market on the day that the Fedwire had, uh, <coughs> had, had tripped. So it was you know, it wasn't just Fedwire. Oh, by the way, Fedwire went down. There was all sorts of effects. And I think, you know, the 10-year Treasury yield jumped 12 basis points on that day and then kept going for the for the following week as it took almost a week, from what I gather, to really start to settle and and, and uh, get through the mountain of backload of payment processes and, settle, and settling all these transactions, which from what I understand from other sources, got to be about $150 billion in unsettled trades over a, lasting over a week. I mean, that's back in August of 1990. That was a big number. So we have this massive sell-off in the Treasury Department, in the Treasury market that was caused by this, this, this liquidity interruption in this vital part of the payment system. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the article that we're referencing is really an essay, and it's at Real Clear Markets, and it was posted today. Jeff, do you know what day it is? It's 
I don't know Today's what date is. February 22nd or 26th. The 26th. And it's February 2021. Why price alone does not render an asset class safe. Jeff, you bring up the fact that there was a, a treasury uh, loss, a serious loss, yields rising very quickly. And there was one this week as well, wasn't it? Quite a sharp one. Yeah, yesterday, uh, February 25th, the treasury market experienced a pretty violent, nasty sell-off, especially, and really all, it, you know, it wasn't just the 10-year or the 30-year, it was the five-year had a really bad sell-off. And, you know, you have to wonder, Fedwire goes down on Wednesday, very much like August of 1990, all of a sudden we have this massive interruption, or at least a massive sell-off that we can see hits the treasury market in almost exactly the same fashion. And of course, the Federal Reserve is going to say, operational error, whatever that, I mean, operational error could be pretty much anything along. I mean, that, that, that encompasses almost anything, except for a couple of guys on a podcast talking about Fedware for a couple of weeks in advance of it, uh, if you're a conspiracy theorist. But, you know, operational error could be anything. And they don't say, well, I mean, okay, the Fedwire went down for about three hours, but you know, we, we do know that they extended Fedwire deadlines into the night, which meant that there must have been some further <clears throat> implications from that service interruption. Now, the Fed did look at some of these moments in recent history, last couple of decades, as these kind of shocks. And you bring this up in, in your article. You say that in December 2003, then Richmond Fed President Jeffrey Lacker examined several similar plumbing issues. And what did they find? What did Mr. Lacker find? What was the conclusion? Well, that's, I mean, the point is this Fed, as rare as they are, these kinds of service interruptions, these plumbing problems do happen. They do have, not regularly, but they happen often enough that we have a caseload that we can look at and examine. One of them, probably the most famous episode was September 11th, 2001, which was the focus of Jeffrey Lacker's paper in December 2003, because let's face it, it wasn't just a fire in, in lower Manhattan and a minor blackout. It was a complete wipeout of especially the bond dealing business, because a lot of the big bond dealers like Cantor Fitzgerald had located in the, inside the top levels of the one of the World Trade Center towers. So what what was notable about all of these various events, including the 1985 Bank of New York interruption that we talked about before, was that these were interbank interruptions, therefore leading to illiquid behavior across a wide, a wide cross-section of the financial landscape, which basically said, yeah, this stuff is really important. You know, when we have a disruption, the, you know, and it's gotten to the point where, especially in the 21st century, we become so dependent on them, and they've become so huge and so massive and so automated that even the potential loss of disruption can have very serious consequences. But I think this is the underlying question and thesis of your article. But that doesn't mean there are systemic consequences. And the question you ask here. Why hadn't this relatively serious payments disruption in 1990, which obviously triggered more than just apprehension in monetary and fixed income markets, make the whole system come crashing down? In certain moments, the system does suffer terribly. In others, it doesn't. So what is the explanation? Why do these anomalies, why are they sometimes just anomalies and why are they sometimes triggers? Yeah, and that's really, I think that's a major point that we need to understand is that, you know, 
These things happen all the time. They happen before 2008, they happen after 2008, but yet there seem to be different kinds of response or different kinds of outcomes based on whether or not they happened before or after 2008, at least in modern history. Again, August of 1990 was the period when you would have thought with all of this stuff going on, we're heading into a recession, SNL crisis, and oh, damn, you know, for a week, the Fedwire system caused a log jam and a massive spike in yields and all these bad things happened. War, serious war. Yeah, I mean, everything. Why wasn't August 1990 the same as August 2007? What was the difference there? And I ask this question all the time, and it's really, it's about the monetary system. It's about the backbone behind all of these things. The euro dollar system in 1990 was absolutely robust. It was bursting. It was growing. It was resi- resilient and, and, and uh, vibrant. It was a dynamic place. And so a euro dollar monetary system in August 1990 said, yeah, these things are problems. They're big problems. But we got money to make money. So we're just going to keep going. That's what's different. And so you go to the post-August 2007 regime, that when you erase that kind of background behind all of these other things, suddenly a nominally that, that happened that would have happened before August 2007 that nobody would have cared about, they start to become big problems or at least bigger problems in the context of where we don't have a, monet- a monetary resiliency globally. And that's really the issue here. And that's, I think, the contrast between the Fedwire in February, February 2021 versus Fedwire in August 1990, why we're looking at February 2021 a little bit more seriously than August 1990 is that we don't have that monetary background. In fact, when we look at what's happened over the last decade, these ups and downs, these cycles swinging back and forth between reflation and, and global dollar shortage, what really causes them to go back and forth is that kind of skittishness. When dealers be con- are confronted with any sort of problem, Whereas in 1990, they just ignored it and, you know, they fixed it as quickly as they possibly could and got on with themselves. In the post-2008 era, they don't. They, they accumulate these anomalies and say, you know what, eventually there's just too many of them. We give up. We're going back into our hole. We're going to go back into risk aversion again. That's really the key here. It's not that the anomalies are happening because they always happen, but how they're treated in the behavior of the monetary system. And the problem and how it affects us is that our economy, our wages, our employment, our long-term outlook is attached, driven, fueled by this monetary system. Jeff, if we haven't covered a key point that you wanted to bring up, raise it now. Otherwise, we're going to travel into the future all the way to 2013 to talk about the taper tantrum in part two. Yeah, before we get to the taper tantrum, the last thought is, as you pointed out before, is the fact that the Fedwire, the Federal Reserve is treating this as nothing. And so, you know, I'm sure that the, the big banks and trading desks and exchanges have their direct lines into the Federal Reserve Bank of New York is saying what happened and all that. But this kind of information asymmetry, which in ni- August 1990 might not have made a difference in post 2008 environment, it doesn't help at all. Because people are left to wonder and think, you know, especially if you're one of these interbank participants, you're, 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 you're loading up payment messages on chips that, you know, is connected to Fedwire. And you think, you know, maybe I need to be a little more careful today than I was yesterday, especially given what happened in the treasury market, which nobody seems to want to connect to Fedwire, or at least nobody wants to explain other than, oh, bonds have been selling off. So there's, there's a lot of uncertainty that is unhelpful. It really is unhelpful, Jeff. And I always wonder why is there this belief that you need to keep these things secret? Why? Because you need to put, it's 
it's uh, you're managing expectations, right? That's how you conduct monetary policy. And if you say, well, we don't know, and there's a serious problem, but we're looking into it, we're working on it, then it may suggest that you are fallible. But we're already past that. The Federal Reserve doesn't know it, but if they did, then they would realize that being upfront, um, transparent, as we've learned in other crises, like remember the Tylenol case, right? There was some poison. The CEO was out there. This is what we know. This is what we don't know. This is what we're doing. We'll keep you posted tomorrow. I wish that's what we were receiving from our leaders, not just in the central banking area, but more broadly, just honest transparency. Yeah, instead they, they treat us like we're children who will panic at the first sign of trouble. When the irony is it's not us who are panicking. We didn't, it wasn't people who created the 2008 financial crisis. It was these very banks participating in these interbank systems. So that's the real tragic irony here. Let's talk about panic, the taper tantrum. Let's scoot forward to 2013 in part two. The taper tantrum is back. The taper tantrum is back. But what is the taper tantrum, ladies and gentlemen? We're going to ask Jeff Snyder, the head of global research at Alhambra Partners, what it's about. Why is the taper tantrum back? Well, according to the Financial Times by Mr. Richard Bernstein in an opinion column just this week, February 24th. Here's the title of it in case you wanted to read it, ladies and gentlemen. Fed needs to ignore taper tantrums and let longer rates rise. Central banks should take its cue from a baby sleep training technique. Let me read a few pages, oh, just a paragraph here. The Ferber method, not to be, confer, not to be confused with the Ferbus uh, general equilibrium model, which we discussed in episode 35, part two. Okay, the Ferber method, a sleep training technique, teaches babies to self-soothe and fall asleep on their own. It's as much a training technique for new parents to ignore their babies crying as it is for the child to learn to cope by it themselves. The U.S. Federal Reserve should consider, consider ferberizing bond investors and ignore future taper tantrums like the market disruption that occurred when the central bank signaled tighter monetary policy in 2013. The long-term health and competitiveness of the U.S. economy may depend on bond investors' self-soothing ability to cope with reality. Jeff, we're going to talk about the taper tantrum right now. No, no, no. We're not going to talk about the taper tantrum because there was no taper tantrum, and this is all wrong. Bond investors aren't panicking. They're looking at the future and saying, hey, it doesn't look as bad as we thought. We want interest rates to rise. Everybody wants interest rates to rise. That's the point here. Rising interest rates are not an awful imposition. They're the signal that things are working. Things are going in the right direction. Again, interest rate fallacy. Rising interest rates are bond market investors selling the safe liquid stuff and presumably doing more risky stuff with their funds, which is what we want them to do. Yeah, exactly. And so you bring up what the taper tantrum was versus well, no, what it is. Everybody says the taper tantrum in 2013 was because Ben Bernanke said the word taper. When he actually, he never actually said the word taper, by the way. Um, and then it doesn't really matter. What he said was in May 2013. Well, this QE we said was going QE4 was going to go on forever. QE3 and QE4 that started in 2012. But things look like they're improving. So maybe we won't, we won't need to do QE forever. 
And the bond market took that cue and said, oh, maybe things are improving. When in the media, and according to economists and central bankers who control the yield curve, it must have been the yield curve reacting to, to instructions from Ben Bernanke. No, what the bond market was saying is, we agree with you, Ben. We kind of think things look like they're improving and not getting worse as we feared earlier in 2013. And so we're going to sell some of our safe and liquid instruments and start buying some more risky stuff, which is what we wanted. Except the problem was, come 2014, they started buying the safe and liquid instruments all over again, and nobody could figure out why. That's really why we talk about the taper tantrum, is because we can't figure out the other half of it. And the other half of it was false dawn, failed recovery, no inflation. And so what's happened is, well, maybe the rising interest rates choked off the recovery before it got going. And that's really reverse engineering from the position of, well, the Fed controls the yield curve. Therefore, why would it go back down in 2014 when it should have kept going, when rates should have kept going upward? It's really misunderstanding the fact that the bond market is independent of the central bank. How dare you? That last point. How dare you make that <laughs> last point? Blasphemy, right? <laughs> a couple of points, ladies and gentlemen. I'm going to go back a little bit, just a couple of points. You heard Jeff Snyder just say QE4, and you're like, well, guy doesn't even know what he's talking about because there was no QE4 until recently. It was QE3. Ladies and gentlemen, as we explained before, just because they don't call it QE4 doesn't mean there weren't four QEs by the time the taper tantrum began. Jeff, you're welcome to talk about it that if you want to. If not, I'm gonna go on to my other point. The other point is the reason we're discussing this taper tantrum is because Jeff wrote an article at Alhambra Partners blog post, and it was posted on the 2nd, no, the 22nd of February, and it was called, What Might Be Another Market-Based Yield Curve Twist? Because the yield curve is twisting, it's spreading, right? It's getting wider. And so we already discussed the first two reasons why that might be. In episode 45, part one, we gave one reason, well, Jeff explained, that it might have something to do with non-performing loans and the possibility of rating downgrades for banks. Episode 49, part two, we gave a technical reason that it might have something to do with the upcoming cliff, quote unquote, and the supplementary leverage ratio, capital ratios, that sort of thing. So now, Jeff, you are giving a third reason, and that is by going back in time and looking at the taper tantrum, and you quote your, your articles from about that time, 2014 and 2015, you quote three of them, Jeff. In there, you talk a little bit, a lot, you talk a lot about the mortgage bond market. Just tell us a little bit more what was happening with mortgage bond securities, something called the TBA market, and how this, there might have been a collateral squeeze and a run, and that was involved with the taper tantrum. Well, before we get to that, let's, let's, let's uh, be clear about when we're talking about the yield curve twist here. It's the opposite twisting of what uh, the Federal Reserve at least attempted to try to tell the public it was doing with, its, with what it called Operation Twist. When the Fed attempted to do Operation Twist in late 2011, it was trying to sell bills and buy bonds, which was to twist the curve so that would the short end would kind of come up and the long end would stay pegged at where it was. That was the twisting it was ta- it, they were try- attempting to, 
to happen. And that's really what Richard Fisher, as we talked about in our last episode, that's what he was really saying when he said, why are we buying assets that people are already buying themselves? Now, the twist we're talking about in 2013 and again in 2021 is that short-term rates have fallen at the same time long-term rates are rising. So the curve is twisting in the opposite way. And if we had talked about, you know, if this was a real recovery, we would expect the curve to be, behave a little bit differently. We would expect the entire nominal curve to start really shifting, maybe, maybe much less at the front, but we wouldn't expect the bill rates to fall towards zero. And in fact, when you go back to the 2013 twist, the same thing happened then too. It wasn't just that long-term nominal yields were rising, as they were. They, were, they rose actually more quickly then than anything we've seen today. But the bill yields were falling, and they had been falling since February of 2013, which is something we talked about before in previous episodes with repo fails and all the stuff going on in the repo market. So we have this twisted curve in 2013 showing up too. No, keep going. I'm going to show a graph that shows this taking place, but you keep talking. Yeah, okay. So when we talk about what – another thing that happened in June of 2013 was that as the Treasury market was selling off, the uh, – the um, the MBS market really got. I mean, I mean, we're talking about a real massive route in the MBS market late in June of 2013, which really kind of created uh, more of a, a situation where we start to bring our attention to repo and collateral and things like that. And the reason is because of how MBS is put together, how the MBS market works. And when you're securitizing, not just a mortgage bond, but any kind of securitized uh, a security. You're pooling assets together and then creating structures off of them. So it's not like you're putting it together on day one and then selling it to investors. You actually have to pool up a bunch. In this case, you have to create a pipeline of individual mortgages that you can sort out, put them together by uh, similar characteristics, and then package a pool together into an MBS security that actually you've pre-sold into the market, something called a production coupon, so that you actually have to have a steady pipeline of mortgage mortgage. Uh, loans into this TBA market in order to in order to eventually create this mortgage bond that you've actually already sold to investors. And while you're pooling all these mortgages together, you have certain obligations, certain risks, certain funding. And that's I mean that we talk about software before. This is one reason why software is completely useless. It doesn't help you in the TBA market as you're pooling together mortgage loans and this and, and uh, maintaining what you hope is a steady pipeline of reasonable mortgages. So the originator, right, or the securitizing firm, they promise to deliver a package in the future. And in return, they get some sort of, uh, what, some sort of support from the, eventually the Federal Reserve. Is that what was happening at the time? And the problem is, if there is some sort of disruption in the mortgage market, right, or as you explain here, in the demand, maybe people aren't getting as many mortgages as they wanted. So the supply isn't available. All of a sudden, you're unable to deliver what you promised you were going to. And there are fail-safes for that, contingencies. But that may have been a broad yeah. systemic problem. And so people it, it, are running. Go for it. Yeah, go. No, I just say mortgages are a messy business, right? I mean, because people, they, they start a mortgage application. I mean, it's not just you don't get a loan tomorrow. You start an application, maybe you don't finish it, maybe you don't qualify, maybe you're close to qualifying and you don't close. I mean, there's any number of factors that happen. And so there's, 
you always have to juggle all of these things in the mortgage pipeline. At the same time, you have to have, you know, you have to have financing in place because you're giving out mortgages. And so the pipeline grows, it shrinks, it's a dynamic marketplace. The funding market, this TBA market is a dynamic place. Sometimes the Federal Reserve comes in because it wants to stimulate more activity. There's all sorts of stuff that goes on there. And of course, because this is, you know, this is finance, this is the way things are done in the modern world, it's collateralized. These things called dollar rolls, which essentially act as a repo collateral. So as you were, as you were pointing out, you know, when you're putting together a mortgage structure, you're sort of pre-selling it. You're sort of committing yourself to deliver a certain amount of mortgage loans and funding those loans until you deliver those loans. What happens, for example, if you've promised to deliver a billion dollars in mortgage loans, but you can only find half of that many because the pipeline dried up? Now, all of a sudden, you're, you're committed to deliver all these loans, but you don't have loans. So you have to go in and fund. You have to you have to find some funding elsewhere to keep yourself in, in business. You have to satisfy your production coupon at the same time. You have to find replacements, dollar rolls that could essentially fulfill your obligations. And in other words, you have to have the collateral to borrow to be able to keep yourself in the business long enough until this pipeline problems are dealt with. And in, in the middle of 2013, we had one of the sharpest interruption in mortgage business that we've seen in a long time. Because because of interest rates rising quickly, um, essentially people stopped, you know, they stopped uh, applying for refinancing, refinancing mortgages and, and uh, for purchasing new homes. And so the pipeline interruption definitely spilled over into other parts of the financial system. If the economy was healthy, they would have been able to afford that rise in interest rates. That's the key point here too, right? Recovery, growth. Rising interest rates, that's okay because my wages are improving because my business is doing well. That wasn't the case because we were stuck in a post-2008 world. Yeah, uh, but your mortgage rate is not supposed to be your primary consideration when you know doing a mortgage, right? I mean, that's not supposed to be what – I mean, yes, with refinancing, you want to get a lower rate, that kind of thing. But really, it's not supposed to be that much of the <laughs> determining factor in the this massive uh, credit market, Right. It's supposed to be about other things, and the mortgage rate's supposed to be one of those things that you can kind of set aside and say, well, we'll move it up or down to maybe influence people's decisions a little bit, but it shouldn't interrupt the entire pipeline to the point where it has spillover problems. And those spillover problems are a signal that things are not working the way they're supposed to be working. Now, Jeff, forgive me if you've already restated this, but how does that mortgage problem disorder translate into... The, what was called the taper tantrum. Did you that was where we saw the twist in the yield curve. That was where you saw, okay, the scramble for collateral pushed down bill yields because got it. we're looking for collateral because got we've got leveraged positions that need funding and we're not getting them filled from the mortgage pipeline. We can't go into the TBA market with nothing. We need some kind of collateral to maintain ourselves until we could we can fulfill our production coupon obligations. Therefore, there was heightened demand for collateral for that and for other reasons. But you know, that's why the curve was twisting as it was in 2013. You have long rates rising, which was a segment of the market saying maybe the long term won't be as bad as we thought it was going to be late in 2012 and early 2013. And then you have the short end of the curve and Treasury bills saying. We still have collateral problems here. You know, the Fed's doing QE and they're actually making it worse. And so, you know, 
eventually this could bench this 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 could another one of those things that could accumulate to become a turning point where the monetary system just can't get out of its own way and that's really what happened we saw it not just in terms of what happened in the treasury market but also the dollar exchange rate the people i think you might remember back in at the same time during this quote unquote taper tantrum we had a minor emerge, uh, emerging emerging market currency crisis erupt too as the dollar started to rise against a number of currencies that was not expected to be a, a problem, which all of these things were essentially precursors to what would follow in 2014 and 2015. So by the end of 2013, the long end of the yield curve stopped rising because it realized, oh, all that stuff going on in the bill market and the TBA market and the dollar exchange rate, yeah, that's going to be a big problem. And this, this inflationary recovery we thought was maybe a little bit more probable than that we did last year. No, it's, it's not going to happen. Jeff, in this article that we're discussing that you posted on the 22nd at Alhambra Partners, you also bring up a similar situation, slightly different circumstances, uh, that happened in 2017, latter half. If you want to discuss that, we can. I'll pull up the graph. Otherwise, I'll just conclude here with what your, I think, main takeaway is. And this is your final paragraph. Quote, the system still exhibiting key symptoms, the same, sadly, of being broken down present day, just not nearly as uniformly and openly as it had been during the last year, 2020. That's not quite the same thing as an inflationary overshoot, though, is it? And that's what we're really talking about. Look, Treasury, I mean, people think of the Treasury market as, you know, that's the safe market, it's risk-free, all that stuff. Well, that doesn't mean prices are not volatile. And what we have seen periodically is that Treasury yields, especially at the long end, tend to sell off during these reflationary periods. But what does that actually mean? People, I mean, you hear it all the time from the mainstream media, it's foregone conclusion, inflation's coming, recovery, all these things. No, what it means is that the long end of the treasury market is saying, well, things are may not be as bad as they were just before that. And so right now, as the treasury yields sell off in the long end, what that's saying is that, hey, maybe 2021 may not be as bad as 2020 which is not the same thing as an inflationary inferno and a recovery. In fact, the sell-off in the treasury market that we're experiencing right now doesn't even come close to 2017 or 2013. So we're, we're, we're seeing a repeating pattern where the, what's going on right now is in no way unusual. In fact, this is actually typical of these kinds of periods. And what they're telling us is that things seem to be improving. But what does that actually mean? Does that mean that they're going to improve? Not necessarily. And the reason they haven't improved, at least in the prior cycles of 2013, 2017, go be back before that, 2010 and 2011, is because of these warning signs and anomalies that we see build up in maybe the short end of the bill curve, or the fact that the dollar starts to rise or it doesn't fall like it should, or any number of these anomalies that we know are going to compound themselves and eventually Instead of recovery number one, we end up with euro dollar number four or number five or whatever the next one is on the list. We never seem to be able to get out of it. And that's really what the, the, the treasury twist is, is indicating, that there's enough of those problems that the, in, in the immediate space, in the immediate monetary space globally that, you know, that there's, there's a reason there's a pro this is a probability spectrum that still favors some of the, the, the less of the, uh, the explosive growth kind of scenarios. Jeff, we often refer to it as the shadow system because it's in the shadows. You can't measure it directly. You have to do it 
indirectly. And one of those measures is the treasury yield curve, the bill yields, which we've been discussing. But another one might be another lens through which to view the shadow, the commodity markets. And that's where we're gonna to turn to in part three, a very specific commodity, oil. We're gonna talk about oil. We're also gonna talk about Texas electricity and collateral. So that's where we're going to right now in part three. Part three, ladies and gentlemen, we're gonna talk about the oil market. What does the oil market, supply, stock, inventory, prices, tell us about this economic recovery? It's a very important commodity that tells us what economic actors are willing to invest in to build for real economic activity for the future. What are they seeing? What are they thinking? We're going to ask Jeff Snyder, Head of Global Research at Alhambra Partners. Jeff, article, blog post, Alhambra Partners, People Know the Drill. It was on February 24th, and it was called Hot Oil, Cold Weather, Uncle Sam's Green. and you start out talking about the U.S. Energy Information Administration and the total amount of gasoline supplied by the domestic marketplace reaching 8.4 million barrels per day in the second week of February. So two, three weeks ago. And is that a good number? I don't know. I'm not in the business. Is that a good number? It's one of those things. It's not a good number, but it's better than it had been. And at least it's moving in the right direction. In product supply, what the Energy and Information Administration is trying to tell you is that's how much product that the, the system has supplied into the marketplace. So it's sort of a proxy for demand. And so what we want to see is that, you know, especially gasoline demand, gasoline demand has been severely depressed for many, many months. It had fallen off sharply like anything else in March and April when everything was closed, the major shutdowns. It had come back sharply in uh, May and June, but then like the labor market, it kind of stopped. And it stopped significantly below where it should be. And it should be, I mean, should be if, if there had been no interruption in, in, uh, in any kind of, the, any, any parts of the economy. So gasoline demand came back, but like the labor market, it never really came back. What about just last week? So you wrote this on the 24th, but the week before, or at least the most recently weekly a number when you wrote it, was really affected by the, the shock, the polar shock that ripped across the United States. And so we saw a drop both in demand and supply. And so your, what does your analysis lead to from there? Can we look at this particular week? Well, I think, you know, that's, it's, it's probably one of those weeks that you throw out and say, okay, that's an anomalous week that there was weather factors, in this case, actually serious weather factors involved. So it may not be that um, we look at that. As far as demand overall, especially in gasoline, that had been trending in the right direction going back to early January, which as I think everybody knows, that's when the second of the stimulus payments came out, the $600. So there is some kind of detectable influence, at least in terms of gasoline, with Uncle Sam's generosity. We saw that before. I mean, you can make the case that a lot of the gasoline purchasing up into you know in the early parts of the recovery last year were due to the initial helicopter payments from Uncle Sam, and so you know maybe these latest ones of from starting from the end of last year has had an impact at least in some in some of these um, some of the economic factors, including the use of gasoline. What about stocks, Jeff? I'm going to pull up 
oil stocks and gasoline stocks. And it seems like they're high, but within the recent range of experience of years. But of course, there's a twist regarding yeah, production. Let me like show, as you're showing going. here, the oil price oil prices have been on fire. I mean, oil, oil mm -hmm. has basically gone vertical here, which again that feeds into the inflation hysteria that, that's ongoing in a lot of other places. The idea that this is the start of some kind of either commodity super cycle or um, if it's based on the Federal Reserve excessive money printing, as as we keep getting getting told that this is the the end of the road for the U.S. dollar. Well, then if if prices are surging, then I would think producers are producing like like crazy. Yeah, that, let's get that out there. No, right, which is basic economics, right? That's economics one hundred and one. If if we have prices fall, then supply should be matching matching with prices, or prices rising, then supply should be uh, rising to meet it. And we've seen the exact opposite of that. So we had so much production shut down last year, an enormous amount of production, in fact. And it's never really come back. Now, the, the, the low of the latest week was due to a lot of the Texas uh, portions of the, the uh, production system going offline. But still, even before the week before, February 12th, it was still about 20% less than the peak in 2020. So the reason oil prices are coming back is because producers have been very reluctant to restart their supply. And so we have essentially a supply squeeze going on. You know, for uh, our audience that's just listening via podcast, they don't see the graph we're looking at. Uh, the last time I saw this sort of uh, profile was when I was in Yosemite and I was looking at Half Dome. So you see the mountain rising and then sheer cliff face. And then now we're, there's no recovery despite the surge in price. So we're still on the floor of the Valley of Yosemite. Beautiful place, by the way. Jeff, have you ever been there? I have not been to Yosemite. I think it's one of the most beautiful places on earth. I haven't been everywhere, but it was it's amazing. Okay, so stocks are high, but not unusually high relative to recent experience. But wait a minute, production has been cut drastically. So the stocks, both in crude oil and gasoline should be plunging, they're not. Yeah, that's what we, you know, I think that's why producers have been reluctant to restart production is because Oil inventories are not falling as quickly as maybe they, I hate to use the word should, but maybe not as quickly as they might have if things were really improving as much as we thought. Now, again, I should point out, this is a period, you know, early, Feb early part of the year is a period of seasonal accumulation. So the fact that inventories are even falling at all is a win for the oil market. And it's one of the things that is buoying the oil price because they're saying, look, at least inventories are being draining when they should be building under a normal typical year. So the oil market is saying, you know, okay, things are improving, maybe not as quickly as we want, but at least they're moving in the right direction. Even gasoline, which is a little bit more on the concerning side. Again, as we talked about before, gasoline demand remains completely off the charts low. So even the fact that gasoline, uh, gasoline uh, being used is down, inventories remain high, at least in, in this part of the, of the, the energy system. So there's still, you can understand why producers have been reluctant to restart a lot of production because the fundamental balance of the market is really precarious and it's really based on the, it's really based on the fact that supply has been so careful in, about getting back online. And right now I just pulled up a chart, which we've been talking about, and now you're comparing the most, let's see, since 2016, uh, 
product supply, finished gasoline. And here we can see just the whew, completely detached. Just how depressed, I mean, that's. It, it, I don't think this chart really does it justice. We're talking about a, a 15 to 17% shortfall in gasoline <laughs> used across the entire economy. I mean, 15% less use of gasoline. And we're talking not just, you know, last year during the pandemic's early stages, but throughout most of the rest of the year and to start this year. I mean, that's an enormous shortfall in this crucial commodity. And so, you know, back to our original thesis, you know, again, what, what's going on in the oil market with Contango being compressed out of the, of, the, of the futures curve, the curve going back into backwardation, what the oil market is saying is that we're seeing enough improvement in the fundamental propositions here that we're going to project into the near term and maybe into the intermediate term that it's going to continue getting better. And maybe that furthermore, the stimulus payments, quote unquote, stimulus payments or stipends, including not just the one in December, but the, the one that's going to show up eventually, uh, the next one, these things will get us through so that, you know, maybe by some point in the in the not too distant future, things might be at least closer to normal again. The economy could be back in relatively decent shape. We don't know what that actually means, especially uh, uh, if you're an oil producer. But at the very least, it looks like things are moving in the right direction and might stay in the right direction for a, a little while. So we started talking about oil. A lot of oil comes from Texas in America. We were talking about how the weather disruption uh, made the latest gasoline and oil inventories perhaps not uh, comparable to previous years. But again, that goes back to that weather winter shock that we saw last week. And especially, where did it take place? It took place in Texas. And I have a fascinating article here, Jeff, that I would just want to bring up a few comments here. It's got something to do with collateral. I'm going to read it out. You jump in if you hear anything interesting. And it, I guess it ties back to our little uh, discussion of, of uh, anomalies that we talked about in part one. So, Let's see here. When did this come out? Wednesday, the 24th, the Financial Times. Power market credit crisis looms as Texas bills come due. The Texas electricity crisis last week has morphed into a credit crisis in the state's wholesale power market, where participants have begun defaulting on a portion of the $50 billion in energy purchases made during the record cold weather, according to an update from the grid operator. The Electricity Reliability Council of Texas, which serves as a central clearinghouse for buyers and sellers in the wholesale electricity market, said on Wednesday that it had tapped emergency funding to cover failed payments. The bill is now coming due as buyers, such as electricity retailers, municipal utilities, and power generators, have to post collateral as a down payment on purchases. Some retailers have failed to deliver. Ken Ogleman, ERCOT's Vice President of Commercial Operations, told the agency's board. Defaults are possible, and some have already happened, he said. If buyers are not able to cover their bills, ERCOT will pay the generator, and the charges will ultimately be spread out to other market participants, including other generators and traders, as permitted by regulations. Collateral requirements soared as a result of the electricity price rise. The total amount held at ERCOT at the start of February totaled about 60 million, but a six, 600 million, 
but a single company, power producer Exelon, said on Wednesday it had posted $1.4 billion of collateral with ERCOT. It has funded the collateral call with new borrowing. Collateral requirements would peak on Thursday and Friday this week, that's today, and add financial stress on market participants, Ogleman said. It sort of reminds me, it doesn't have to be this way, but it sort of reminds me of the 1906 earthquake in San Francisco and how a call went out to insurance companies and across, you know, across the United States to New York, to Britain that said, we need money to rebuild and we're pulling this money in. And that set off what would eventually be the 1907 financial crisis. But I guess, Jeff, just do you have any thoughts? Collateral, tense? It sounds like an operational error, right? Because <laughs> yeah. essentially ERCOT operates like Fedwire. It's an interbank, it's not an interbank system, but it's an intersystem man a way of settling uh, financial transactions in the energy market. And of course, they're the ultimate arbiter, they're all the ultimate settler of all those payments, and they're on the hook. And they're going to try to get paid, and it sounds like they're going to have a lot of trouble getting paid, which only creates, as we talked about in the earlier segment, you know, this kind of informational asymmetry creates uncertainty. Not just financial uncertainty, but legitimate uncertainty, legal uncertainty, all sorts of things that cause uh, behavioral changes, risk aversion, things like that, downstream effects that maybe we don't see right now. And you would expect, given the fact that the energy market is scrambling for collateral and trying to figure out who's going to pay what, where, and when, given how just overall repo markets, collateral transformation has, over the last five years in particular in the United States, the collateral conditions across the entire repo market have been dictated in some ways by the energy market. I mean, junk bonds, the biggest supplier of junk bonds for the last half decade have been in the energy sector. And we saw that last March. It's, you know, when uh, oil prices collapsed, what happened to junk bond prices? They collapsed too. And that was one of the triggers for the collateral squeeze, the collateral bottleneck, as we said, because energy bonds, energy junk bonds in particular, are closely related to some of the, the uh, fundamental factors in the repo market. And so we don't really know yet how this would play out. And it may be it may just one of those anomalies that, you know, we, we look back on and say, yeah, this is the system performing well, but it may also turn out to be a case where we don't really see the the hidden aspects that are already starting to work their way. I mean, maybe that's why bill yields have been falling since then, um, at least over the last little while. It may be that there's a scramble collateral that's starting to really become a major issue or at least a more of a major issue. Yeah, that's right. That's, I guess, what this whole show has been about is that uh, when do anomalies transform into triggers uh, when the uh, the system is fragile? And uh, there's just been an accumulation of anomalies recently with the so-called uh, SLR cliff, the Fedwire. This situation in Texas could be nothing. Could be something. Yeah, I mean, that's what we're really talking about here. Monetary resilience is a margin for error, right? Mm. It's the capacity for the dealers who are at the center of that system to absorb these anomalies. To when things go wrong, we need these. We need that extra spare capacity to come online. And you know, the the energy sector is a perfect example. One of the reasons they had power disruption is because they couldn't they couldn't have spare capacity. Some of these uh, standby power generation facilities were not allowed to come online and fill in the gap. That was the perfect analogy to what happens in the monetary system. 
monetary, you know, dealers are supposed to have spare balance sheet capacity that they can tap into when things go wrong. But as we've seen, especially over the last couple of years, going back to, you know, September, September 2019 repo, what we've seen time and again is dealers during these periods where they're risk averse, they either don't have the spare balance sheet capacity to tap into, or they just flat out refuse to do it, which means that the system that should have this ability to absorb shocks suddenly doesn't have any ability and these shocks become much bigger than they ever had been before. That's, you know, there's always anomalies. There's always going to be crises and little problems and big problems and all these other things. What's missing and what turns them into bigger deals is the fact that we don't have our monetary shock absorber, which, I mean, we're supposed to believe that's the Federal Reserve, but let's face it, you know, going back 13 years, they have performed so poorly at that task that it boggles my mind that anybody still believes that that's the case. Jeff, I thought this was a great show. I loved it. And if you have any concluding thoughts, let me know. Otherwise, off into the weekend we go, and I'll talk to you again next week. Okay, Emil, take care. Bye.